Welcome to episode number 56 of the Dust Safety Science Podcast. We're creating a global community around process safety and industries handling combustible dust. I'm your host, Dr. Chris Cloney. Today's episode, we're talking about hazard identification and evaluation through dust hazard analysis. And to do that, we have on the call Walter Frank, founder of Frank Risk Solutions based out of Wilmington, Delaware. Walt, thanks for coming on the Dust Safety Science Podcast today. Oh, thank you for inviting me. Looking forward to this. Yeah, I'm looking forward to this discussion as, as well. Walt has a, an immense amount of experience in process safety management. He has over 50, 45 years experience in incident investigation, explosion, hazard evaluation. He's a longtime member of NFPA 654, 68, and 69. He's part of the NFPA Correlating Committee on Combustible Dust, which is sort of the overarching committee that uh, focuses on, on the layout of the different standards. And he's also a member of NFPA 652, which combined with all his other experience makes him an, you know, an excellent person to talk about for dust hazard analysis. Um, in addition to that, we've covered in the last couple episodes the Methods and Chemical Process Safety Volume 3 book on dust explosions. In episode 53, we talked with Dr. Paul Amiot, who was one of the editors on the book. Um, in 54, we talked with Dr. Shok Daster about explosion testing. And Walt was actually the author for Chapter 5 on hazard identification. That really gave the lay of the land for DHAs. Uh, what is the purpose? Why are they important to consider? You know, what should we know about existing safeguards and just going through the whole process? So that's why I want to get him on the podcast today is to talk through that. Maybe before we get into DHAs specifically, Walt, can you just give the, the audience an idea of what your current role is in the industry and what kind of folks that you work with with combustible dust? Uh, yes. Uh, basically, I'm a process safety consultant, uh, not just in the combustible dust area, but uh, a little bit more broadly, but with a specialization in dust and addressing combustible dust issues. And I, I've worked with a variety of industries over the years, paper manufacturers, wood product manufacturers, pharmaceutical firms. Uh, basically, uh, I deal with any company, any site that uh, has a combustible dust and is concerned about the hazards that that might be introducing. Yeah, and like I kind of mentioned on the just in the intro, Walt's been in this these industries more generally process safety management, but also in combustible dust for for a long time. I mean, so he's a lot of experience to draw on. And I I really enjoyed. I was talking to Walt before we hit record, and this chapter of the the book, chapter five, is probably the most marked up one in my my physical copy I have in front of me here. There's just a lot of really good nuggets, um, a lot of really good quotes that I kind of pulled out. Um, we may we may throw some of those in, but the first kind of section of it is what is the dust hazard analysis, and more importantly, what does it seek to achieve? Uh, so maybe that's a good starting point from from your point of view, Walt. You know, what is the purpose of a dust hazard analysis? Why should industry, besides the fact that it's going to be mandatory as per NFPA six fifty two, you know, why should industry care in the first place? Well, the intent of the exercise is to identify those materials that that pose combustible dust safety concerns, and then go through a uh, organized exercise of identifying just how those concerns can be manifested. What upsets, what uh, scenarios in the process could lead to a, a combustible uh, dust fire and explosion. And then once we've identified those possible scenarios, then uh, the intent is to try to identify either existing or perhaps the need for new controls uh, to mitigate the, the hazards associated with the, the process materials. 
And then we'll, as, as we'll talk later, you know, we, we identify the uh, uh, some recommendations perhaps. Uh, and then the issue is ensuring that those recommendations get followed up on, implemented, and and we really do get the benefit of the protections that we intended to uh, provide in the facility. I guess you've been around for quite a long time in the whole formation of this. Just where did the the dust hazard analysis come from as a as a concept, and what you know what important role were they filling that or need were they filling that wasn't there in industry before? Well, this dates back probably twenty years now. At that time, I was on the NFPA six fifty four committee, and that's uh, that's the NFPA standard combustible dust standard that has uh, the broadest application. And uh, there were a number of people on the committee that had come from industry, industries that were regulated by the uh, the OSHA process safety management standard that had gone into effect in, I think, 1992. So these were folks that, from the process industries, as I say, their, their companies were typically regulated, but they were dealing with combustible dusts that were not covered by the OSHA PSM regulation. Same time, though, these folks understood the value of, of some of the aspects of the uh, OSHA PSM regulations. And uh, we, we began a selective integration of some of those concepts uh, into NFPA 654, not necessarily pulling in all of the regulatory requirement, but uh, implementing some of the concepts in 654. And uh, PHA, is as we called it then, it's now dust hazard analysis instead of process hazard analysis. Uh, dust hazard analysis was one of the first concepts that we integrated into 654. And uh, over the course of time, the other combustible dust standards followed suit. So uh, here we are. Uh, you know, dust hazard analysis is now a requirement in some form of dust hazard analysis is a requirement in all of the NFPA standards. And there are some other management system elements borrowed from the PSM sphere, that uh, process safety management sphere, that we've gradually integrated into the combustible dust standards. Yeah, it's good to get that background. I appreciate, like I said, whenever I had somebody on that's that's seen the the life cycle, um, I do try to get them to talk about it a bit because I think I mean I'm only coming in over say the last decade and and really with an industry focus over the last three or four years so I don't get much of that that history and it's good to kind of pull that out you mentioned that the DHA is really has a couple steps so identifying existing hazards and hazard scenarios identifying existing safeguards against those figuring what the gap is between say, uh, NFPA prescriptive approach and those existing safeguards and then making recommendations on how to close those gaps and, and following through. There are some really good parts on the existing safeguards in the book chapter. For example, there, I pulled out a quote that I underlined, before taking credit for a safeguard, we must have a high level of confidence that will reliably perform as required when called upon. Safeguards must be independent of the cause of the incident. So you know, if it's a if it's a fire that causes the explosion, then the safeguard can't be removed by a fire, or else you can't take credit for it. There are some really good key points there, but maybe just cycling back, what do you, from your point of view, what do you think the? And hopefully, I didn't just steal the the two biggest ones, but what do you think the listener needs to know about evaluating existing safeguards as per the DHA process? Well, you sold in a bit of my thunder, but uh, 
yeah, certainly uh, the safeguards need to be effective. And th there's a lot that goes into that. Uh, if it's uh, some sort of mechanical or instrumentation system, it means it has to be designed adequately to, to uh, perform its intended function. It has to be installed correctly initially. It has to be maintained and tested. You know, if, if we've got a device that uh, we install and we never return to it, never inspect it, never maintain it, you know, five, ten years down the road, how how can we be confident that it's still uh, capable of providing that protection? So having a, a good inspection and preventive maintenance program for mechanical and instrumentation safeguards is important. Of course, not all of our safeguards are are, are mechanical or instrumentation based. Uh, sometimes we do give credit for uh, operator intervention, alarm sounds, and an operator responds. You touched on this a bit, but generally uh, we're a little skeptical about giving credit for operator in intervention if the operator potentially committed the error that led to the event. But more generally, um, when we talk about giving credit for operator intervention, there's a, a series of, uh, of tests that we apply. Is there some something that's going to signal the need for response? Is there a written procedure that tells the operator what to do when that signal, that alarm occurs? Has the operator been trained on the procedure? Is, is, is his uh, understanding of the procedure been evaluated? Does the operator have the time to intervene before the, uh, the, the uh, deviation leads to fire or an explosion? Does the operator have the physical capabilities to do what must be done uh, in the time allowed? So the, the, we're reliant on, on safeguards, protective features, either per, uh, human or mechanical or instrumentation. We just have to make sure that we've got a uh, sound basis for confidence that those protections that we're counting on will really uh, provide the mitigation, the, the protection that we're counting on. Yeah, I can think of a couple examples. For instance, maybe there's some sort of shutoff switch that the operator is supposed to hit when something happens. But if it's a case of a, I don't know, explosion in a nearby vessel, they may that may happen on the order of a second. So can we expect the operator to be able to identify, assess, and then act on the hazard as it builds up? Um, that'd just be one of many probably cases where you know that's not a reliable safety safeguard. And there was a tragic incident. Not long ago, where the uh, the event, the explosion was in a dust collector, and the controls for the dust collector located in a position where, when the explosion vent or deflagration vent opened to discharge, the area where the controls were were, were was engulfed by the fire. And unfortunately, the operator was there trying to respond to the event uh, when the deflagration vent opened. Uh, another thing, uh, you know, you mentioned independence, H having the protections independent of the cause of the event. You know, I, I described the situation involving human intervention where you don't have an independence. If, if the operator created the error, uh, we don't typically give a lot of credit for the operator correcting the error. But if we go into, uh, and I, I use this as an example in the book, instrumentation system. You know, if you have a, a, a dryer that's heating up the material, process materials, trying to drive out the moisture, overheating dryers often leads to fires. 
if you have a failure of the temperature controller or more, say the, the temperature transmitter is a better example. If you have a failure of the temperature transmitter and that causes the dryer to overheat, if you have an interlock that's supposed to shut the dryer down on high temperature, if that interlock takes the same signal from the same transmitter, then those two devices, the control system and the interlock system, are not independent of each other. Failure of the transmitter can defeat both systems. So that's an example where we would not have adequate independence between the two systems. Yeah, I highlighted that one as well, and I'll, I'll kind of restate it so that the, the listener kind of picked up on the importance there. If you have two systems that are, you know, say they're layers of protection, but they're both from the same control box, if the control box fails, they both failed. So you can't really count that as two levels of protection. It's actually, under certain failure scenarios, it's only one level of protection because if the box gets destroyed, then you're, you know, you're out of luck on both cases. Is that kind of what you're talking about? Uh, yeah, that's another way of, of expressing it, yes. We, we have to avoid common mode failures. I was going to say, is, so there must be a, a common framework to identify the safeguard and then identify the interdependencies and sort of see what kind of conflicts are there and that if it can be you know, used as a, as a valid safeguard. Can you, I didn't prep you for this question very uh, beforehand, but you know, can you just walk the listeners through what that might look like if you're, if you're trying to figure this out? Uh, well, there, there's a, a technique called LOPA, Layer of Protection Analysis, that uh, provides for a more detailed, more disciplined assessment of, of protective features. Uh, many people would probably not find themselves in a situation where they had to use a, a technique that's sophisticated. You know, a, a lot of this is just common sense. You know, looking at the looking at the control scheme, if we're talking about an instrument system, looking at a control scheme and, and uh, assessing it, asking, well, what happens if this fails? What's what's going to be the consequences of the failure of this component? And actually, uh, in the in the chapter, I describe a technique called failure mode and effects analysis, which is a uh, an assessment technique where you do just that. You you look at a system. Let's say it's a temperature control system. You've got a uh, a temperature transmitter, and you've got a controller, and you've got some sort of uh, final element control device device that's actually modulating the temperature. And then maybe you've got some interlocks associated with that, like I described earlier. Well, failure mode and effects analysis uh, would take you through a, a disciplined analysis of, well, what happens if the temperature controller fails? What happens if the uh, transmitter fails? What happens if the control valve fails? You know, and, and, and to go back to the example I, I uh, used earlier with the high temperature interlock uh, and, and the uh, temperature control system, this analysis would prompt you to say, well, what happens if the temperature transmitter fails? What if it shows a, a low, uh, false low signal? If you've done the analysis correctly, say, well, that's, that's going to cause us to lose control of the temperature in the, in the uh, dryer. And, oh, look here, that same signal is going over to the uh, interlock, and it's going to be uh, misled by the false low signal. So we've got a problem there. So there are there are the techniques to apply that uh, that that the interactions interconnections of of the devices in the system and find out where your weak points are. Yeah, and I think what you're describing is some of the the more you know the the more sophisticated schemes to to identify. But it may be, it's, it's probably better to have somebody that is an expert like yourself come in and 
and look at the systems and, and maybe you can get through with just, you know, what if type analysis and just having seen so many different systems, I, I would think that you'd be able to identify those a lot quicker than, than, you know, sitting down and maybe going through the whole process. Well, certainly that describes the, the chapter. You know, we have a, a broad toolbox, a broad selection of, of different tools for doing DHAs. And, you know, they can range from upper end, some fairly sophisticated techniques where you might have to bring somebody in that's a skilled facilitator in, in using those techniques. But on the lower tech end, uh, yeah, we, we have something that you've referenced it, the what if analysis. And that's just getting the right mix of around a room and, and look props and saying, well, what if this happens? You know, what's, what's the cons- what are the potential consequences? Uh, what protections do we currently have exist, existing against that scenario? Do we need additional protections? So there are lower tech ways of uh, doing these assessments. The, the key to all of these different techniques that you might use, uh, the, the, the central concept is that none of them are going to work right unless you've got the right mix of people on the team. You want somebody that's got operations experience in the unit. Uh, you want somebody that has some engineering background that's familiar with the unit. Uh, again, you need somebody to lead the meeting. And that, that person needs to know how to use whatever technique you've selected, knows how, to, knows how to conduct a meeting and knows how to get a good cooperation between the team members and, and get, conduct a productive meeting. Sometimes if you've got a very sophisticated piece of equipment or a new piece of equipment that you're bringing in where, where you don't have experience with the equipment, uh, you might want to have a vendor representative participating on the team. If you've got control system issues, you might want to have a control engineer. And, and you should have a core team, uh, as I said, the operator, engineer, the team leader, and, and then... Uh, you know, there may arise occasions where you need a very specialized expertise and you can bring a subject matter expert in for a few hours rather than tying up them, tying them up for the entire duration of the, uh, of the assessment. But the key is having the right expertise and experience on the team so that so the deliberations are credible and, and, and productive. I think that's a really important point, and, and we may have not actually have covered that previously in the podcast. So I think that's a you know a really good thing to go through is what does a team look like, and really who should be involved: operator, the engineer, the facilitator, and then bringing in people as needed. So if, yeah, if you need an equipment vendor rep, if you need you know a subject matter expert on I don't know three D printing or or depending on the application, some specialized area, it's it's important to consider how that team dynamic lays out. And if I if I'm my add you. You may want uh, someone from the maintenance department. A key f- feature of, of this whole concept of combustible dust safety is we, we design the equipment to keep the dust inside because it's less, less of a problem when it stays inside of the equipment. Uh, the equipment itself can introduce ignition sources, hot bearings, whatever. Uh, so it's sometimes good to have someone who's responsible for maintaining the equipment. Uh, in on the team so that he can he or she can talk about uh, the problems that they encounter in maintaining the equipment. Yeah, and make sure that the solution that is generated is feasible to, to feasible to maintain. <laughs> Good point. 
and that kind of brings all the way back to your very first point, which was inspection and maintenance of the safeguards is is you know a critical as critical as as figuring out that safeguards are in place in the the first place. So that was maybe longer than we intended to talk about the the first step of the DHA, but a lot of important points came out. So we've we've evaluated our existing safeguards. We know are in place. How do we go about figuring out what recommendations should be made then in the DHA process? We know what's there, but uh, how are recommendations created to figure out what the next step should be? Well, at least two ways. Uh, one would be via uh, reference to to the NFPA standards um, or other relevant industry standards. You know, there are quite a few prescriptive requirements in, in the NFPA combustible dust standards along the line of, well, if this is the situation, here's the protection you need to guard against the, uh, the situation. And, uh, you know, a, a good aspect of a DHA might be to do a gap assessment of, of the uh, process and the installation against the requirements of the NFPA standards. But the other thing we need to keep in mind is that uh, while they're detailed, uh, the NFPA standards cannot address every conceivable situation. So uh, there needs to be some creative thinking on on the part of the the DHA team as they're working through the exercise. They come up with a scenario and they don't have any protection against the potential consequences of the scenario. They need to propose uh, some solutions. Oh, that makes that makes a lot of sense as well as as well. And because the NFPA standards cover so many different range of industries, even within the commodity specific standards, um, there's still you know dozens, if not you know hundreds of of different types of facilities under each one. It's it's impossible to make something that's going to cover everything specifically right and and if i if i may uh, uh, let me give you an example you know we, we call this a dust hazard analysis but it's conceivable the team may decide to or need to uh, address hazards other than the combustibility of the dust and and again example i use in in the chapter is that uh, one of our protections that we sometimes provide to prevent fires and explosions in, in equipment is inerting. So we're providing nitrogen or some other inert gas to the equipment, and that that in itself poses hazards beyond dust combustibility because inert, inert gases are, are asphyxiants. So uh, two things to keep in mind. Uh, the NFPA standards, uh, like NFPA 69, for example, recognizes inerting as a in a as an explosion protection option, but none of these standards really address the hazards associated, uh, the, the asphyxiation has associated with the nerding. So if, if the team was doing a dust hazard analysis and uh, one of their existing or proposed uh, safeguards is a nerding, they should probably spend a little time addressing how a nerding can be safely uh, implemented in, in the process, so so they'd be addressing the asphyxiation hazard in addition to the uh, combustible dust hazard. Yeah, that's a really good point. Can you give it any examples from your experience on on some things to be thinking about there? If you're if you're thinking about putting a nerding system into your into your process line, or give an example of a process line and how that might be done safely. 
there's certainly some key considerations. One is to make sure you've properly trained all of your personnel in the facility on the hazards of handling inert gases. Uh, the other thing would be to uh, uh, provide conspicuous labeling on inerted equipment, just to let people know that inside the equipment is a a, a uh, atmosphere that would not sustain life. And then, uh, in some cases, depending on the nature of the equipment or the you know the nature of the uh, room containing the equipment, uh, I decide it's prudent to put an oxygen analyzer in the room to alarm if there's a leak uh, that, that results in the oxygen concentration uh, getting below a, a safe level. So three, three examples of, of some prudent precautions that you might take if, if you were uh, inerting your equipment. No, that makes a, lot of, makes a lot of sense. Anything else on creating recommendations that you think would be good to get, uh, get out of this, this podcast or this episode? Well, you know, we, we've talked about earlier about what makes a, a safeguard reliable. So as you're, as you're making recommendations, you need to keep those concepts in mind so that you're not proposing something that's going to be unreliable. You need to make sure that the, uh, that's what you're proposing is feasible. I mean, a team can come up with some really great ideas that, uh, just couldn't be, I say great in quotes, but ideas that, that just couldn't physically or, or, uh, credit be credibly uh, implement reality. Another issue is that sometimes we, if we can propose something, uh, a safeguard, addition of a safeguard, but it may take a while to get that uh, designed and budgeted and installed and working. Uh, if you've got a particularly high risk situation and, and your safeguard is not going to be available for, for an appreciable period of time, you really should consider looking for some sort of interim protection that you can put in place in the short term to, to bridge the gap between now and, and when the long-term uh, safeguard, long-term mitigation uh, can be up and functioning. Yeah, those are great points. I, I put a star beside that. Recommendations should be reliable, feasible, and also give some consideration about the time required to implement. If it's a serious hazard, then you may need an interim solution. And I think cost probably goes under the feasibility aspect too, but that, that would obviously be another consideration for the recommendation as well. Uh, sometimes, well, yes, cost might be difficult or might not be terribly prudent to say, well, I, I can't afford this protection. But if, not, if, if funding is an issue, you need to look for another type of protection that'll achieve the same thing. But, but an, an issue with funding is that sometimes funding takes a while to get through the system. Companies have budgets, they have uh, project processes that they have to go through if it's a particularly expensive capital uh, project. So that, you know, that there can be a considerable time involved in, in getting a, the uh, funding, engineering, procurement, design, installation of the safeguard. And that, again, that brings me back to, well, what can we put in on an interim basis uh, to protect us until we get the final solution that we're looking for. Yeah, I can't, I can't agree with that more. And I was just looking up a quote. When you said that, it made me think of a, an interview I did with Arpad Vares, and that was back in episode 20. And he's, uh, he's based out of Hungary and with a very thick Hungarian accent. He said, our, our motto is that it, um, the equipment must be safe and then functional. 
So if it's if it's not safe, then then it can't function. That's part of the functionality. So it's I think what he was trying to say was that exactly like you're saying, if it, if cost is the issue, there's you need to find another way. So the equipment can't function if it's functioning and unsafely. They kind of go part and parcel, I guess. Well, you raise a very good point. You know, we don't want to install it's going to introduce an even greater hazard uh, than the one we're trying to address. So the, the DH team, DHA team needs to be discriminating in, in terms of uh, making sure that well, the old expression is no good deed goes unpunished. Right. You need to make sure that you're not causing more problems in, by trying to solve an existing problem. Certainly. So we, we've gone through the safeguards. We've gone through the recommendations. I, I ask this one quite a bit when we have people on that do a lot of DHAs because um, I, I think there is some confusion out there in the in industry and in, in what they actually receive. Do you have any guidelines on what a, you know, what a complete and a, I'll, I'll say good in air quotes, whatever good means, dust hazard analysis document would contain within it? Uh, yes. Yeah. A number of considerations there. And, and, uh, Keep in mind, uh, a lot of the NFPA standards require you to return to the DHA and update it periodically, perhaps every five years. So uh, with that in mind, uh, we, we really want a, a well-documented report. One, so that it can be, you know, the, the learnings can be used in, in the near term to improve the safety of the process. But two, uh, we want to have a document that, that the next DHA team can look at five years later and, and get a good sense, a under, good understanding of just what the deliberations were five years previously. Five years down the road, you, your team, your DHA team may look back and say, oh, there were some pretty significant gaps in that prior assessment. We've got to close those gaps this time. Well, if they don't have good documentation of what was done Five years previously, they can't identify those gaps, perhaps. So in terms of content, um, some things that I would like to see in a DHA report is uh, just a, a short executive summary saying, you know, this is, this is what portion of the process we studied, uh, maybe a short description of, of how the process is in operate, uh, just to give a little background to, to the uh, reader. You want to document who was on the team uh, and give some uh, description of their, uh, you know, short biographical or uh, just enough information to understand that they were really qualified to perform the role that uh, was intended of them on the team. I think a good practice is to actually have a roster of who attended each of the uh, team meetings. That way, someone who's reviewing the quality of the report can be confident that Yes, the right mix of expertise was present each and every time the team met. Uh, then, you know, the bulk of the report is going to be documentation of the deliberations. You know, if, if you did a what-if analysis, uh, you're going to have a list of the issues that were addressed uh, and, and that documentation of the evaluation. And, and really, for any of the techniques... I mean, there are other techniques like HAZOP that you might use that, that have a more you know, detailed documentation, you know, a, a form to fill out. But regardless of what technique you, you use, you need to 
identify what was the, uh, let me back up. We talk about scenarios and that that's, the scenario describes a sequence of events starting with some failure leading to some consequence. Uh, temperature transmitter fails, uh, high temperature in the dryer, fire in the dryer, damage to equipment. So you're, you're, you're going from a, a causing, a causal event, either equipment failure or a human error to the likely consequences or the potential consequences, I, sh- I should say, of, of that scenario. So you want to describe the scenario, what, what initiated it, what caused it, what are the potential consequences, uh, what are the existing protections, do you regard the existing te- protections to be adequate? If not, then we've got a column for recommendations. So that would be the gist of what should go into the documentation of the, the deliberations of the, uh, in, in the assessment. And, and I, I show some examples in the chapter. There, as I say, there are some techniques that a bit more sophisticated than a, a simple what if, but, but your thought process is the same really the same regardless of what technique you're using. You know, you're trying to answer a small number of questions. What can happen? How bad could it be? How likely is it to happen? And do I need more protections against it? So four basic questions. So like I say, the bulk of the report is going to be the documentation of the deliberations uh, and then a, a summary of the recommendations. Yeah, that's a that's a good way to outline it, and we probably should have started with those definitions because in the in the book, um, I was looking at page uh, one twenty five. There's this kind of glossary at the front of the chapter, so it goes through. You know, hazard is inherent chemical or physical characteristic that's potential for causing damage. Um, a scenario is a detailed description of an unplanned event that has initiation and then a sequence to it. Consequences: how bad that can be, and and likelihood is how you know how um, a measure of of how likely that is to happen. So that's like the the lay of the land, and then you look at that and go, okay, well, what existing safeguards are in place to avoid those scenarios? And then are those sufficient safeguards? And then the recommendations are closing that gap or that gap analysis of, okay, we have those existing safeguards. What needs to be done to to bring them up to a sufficient level? Um, and that's really the the body of the the DHA document as you're describing it. Um, and I, I really like that outline. And I've talked on the podcast before with um, a number of other folks about this question of what you know what should be in a what should be in a DHA document. And documenting the team is a really important thing. Documenting the facility, probably having some pictures in that of the facility and equipment, um, especially the ones that need you know upgrades. And I think are probably pretty useful for the facility. So when they look back at it, they can you know figure out exactly what you're talking about. And I really liked your point that. Keep in mind, you're going to want to, you're going to need to look at this thing in either two or five years, or at some point down the road when you need to review it, or when you're doing management change, and you're going to want to be able to know what the team was thinking. <laughs> it has to be, you know, documented in a good enough way to understand that whole process. Yeah, and you raise a good point. Uh, you know, ideally, the team is around the table and, and and they're working from some sort of diagrams that describe uh, the process. You know, the, the the typical uh, term is a, a piping and instrumentation diagram. You know, it shows all the major pieces of the interconnecting lines and the uh, the instrumentation that's uh, associated with the process. 
Uh, so, you know, those diagrams, the ones that were referred to uh, during the meeting, uh, would typically be included in the report. Uh, a listing of other, any other uh, key reference documentation that was referred to uh, during the analysis, uh, for example, you know, a list of the operating procedures and the revision numbers. You know, we're, we're trying to dis we're trying to describe a snapshot in time of of just what existed and, and what was assessed uh, during the DHA. And and it, can I return back just for a moment? Uh, and I thank you for quoting the definition of of what a hazard is. You know, a chemical physical chemical or physical characteristic uh, of a material or a system that can cause harm. When people think DHA, most likely the first thing they're going to think of in terms of hazards is the combustibility of the dust. Uh, hopefully they recognize their dust is combustible. And actually the, the NFPA 652 that you mentioned earlier, very early in the standard, it requires that uh, you know, the, the facility identify and quantify the hazards associated uh, with, with the materials they're processing as input to the DHA. Well, yes, so certainly combustibility is a concern, uh, but there may be other hazards. Uh, for example, water reactivity. If you've got a material that's reactive, uh, water reactive, you need to know that because when we get around to talking about fire protection, we may decide it's not particularly prudent to use water to put out a fire involving that water reactive material. Yeah, we see that with magnesium, um, and it can go really bad, <laughs> really quick. Well, and a lot of uh, uh, inorganic organic chemicals yep. that uh, are water reactive. Uh, the other thing is, you know, you mentioned magnesium. Uh, some of the some of the metals will actually burn in in uh, carbon dioxide, so we wouldn't want to use carbon dioxide as a fire extinguishing agent. Some uh, metals will react with nitrogen. So we need to know that so that we're not using nitrogen inerting as, as a safeguard. So the, 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 the key concept here is before you can start any sort of deliberation of the hazards associated with the process is you really need to know the physical and chemical hazards of the materials and that's not just the uh, products. It could be the, you know, the the, the feedstocks, uh, waste products, byproducts. Uh, you need to have a good understanding of the uh, overall chemistry of of the materials you're going to be handling, and in so far as they, as those properties uh, pose a hazards uh, in the process. Yeah, I'm just pulling up from uh, episode 49 of the podcast. We went through. And I pay 652 and the requirements for owners and operators. And I think that all falls under chapter four on the hazard identification of, you know, you must, you must know, I can't remember the exact wording, but you must know whether or not your material poses a fire, flash fire, explosion hazard. Then the, this is more of the DHA, but going through each piece of equipment, each line between each piece of equipment and each compartment with the equipment in it. And then the full facility identifying, okay, that, that material is a hazard. Again, I'm talking more about combustibility hazards, but it's, a, it's the same with all hazards, um, as you're saying. And then in all those different pieces of your equipment, uh, mines and compartments, you know, what's the fire explosion, flash fire explosion hazard scenario that's in there? 
yeah, so that's really important. I thought I'd be able to pull up those chapters, but my computer's being too slow to be able to do that. Uh, but the the listener can go back to episode 49 of the podcast, dustsafescience.com slash 49, and take a listen to that. Uh, so we covered, we covered a lot of ground here. We talked about why dust hazard analysis is important to consider. We talked about evaluating existing safeguards, something we haven't talked about on the podcast before, really, but all the, the considerations to say if something is a safeguard. Um, we talked about how recommendations are created and what the, the DHA document should contain. I think the best place to close up on this interview, and I really appreciate you taking the time to share your, your wealth of experience on all these topics. So what are the next steps after completing a DHA for a facility? I think we'll, we'll kind of close out on that. Well, we've talked about documenting it. A key, well, again, a, an important consideration is sharing the learnings. You know, those folks that are in charge of operating the facility, maintaining the facility, uh, writing operating procedures, uh, really need to be aware of, of the learnings that uh, came out of the DHA. So, so you need to have a system for uh, disseminating learnings. Uh, need to make sure that you're protecting the report, making sure that you've got the uh, one that's available to people, but two that you've got an archive copy uh, to to go back to uh, five years later. <laughs> yeah, you wouldn't want to lose it after all that work in a fire. That would be ironic <laughs> if you lost it in a dust fire. Wouldn't it, though? Uh, I guess probably the most important thing, if I had to risk rank them, the most important concept coming out of, of conducting the DHA is making sure you actually implement the recommendations. Um, you know, you spend a lot of time and expense in, in assessing, analyzing the process. You've come up with some recommendations. Those recommendations are intended to improve the safety of the process. Well, if they don't get implemented, then all of that effort, time and effort has been wasted. So some basic concepts, recommendations need to be assigned to an individual. Someone has to know that they're responsible for implementing that recommendation. You know, don't assign it to the maintenance department, assign it to somebody in the maintenance department. Uh, there needs to be a due date for when that recommendation uh, should be uh, implemented. And those due dates need to be credible. Uh, something that can be easily done tomorrow ought to have a very short, uh, very, very soon due date on it. As we talked about earlier, some of these recommendations may take a considerable period of time. So let's look at interim protections to, to guard against the, the hazard uh, in the short term. Due dates need to be adhered to. There needs to be an understanding that, hey, we're really serious about this. I mean, if we if we said this has to be done by uh, December 31st, we want to see it done by December 31st. So there needs to be some monitoring uh, of, of the progress of, of implementation, some accountability associated with, with missing due dates. Often we'll see organizational changes. Somebody will leave a, a particular role. Well, they leave, typically they leave those recommendations behind when they go to the new job assignment. So there needs to be a clear handoff from the uh, person that's leaving the, the role and, and the person that's coming in and taking over those responsibilities. Again, the focus needs to be making sure that we've implemented these enhancements and safeguards on a timely basis as soon as possible. 
some organizations will, will go one step further. They'll, uh, when, when a recommendation has been closed out, when someone claims that, yes, we have, I have done that, some organizations will, will on a sampling basis, go out, send somebody out to actually make sure that the recommendation was implemented, uh, implemented the way it was intended. Again, as a spot check on the health of the, of the system that's being used to, to track these recommendations to resolution. It would it'd be, bottom line, it'd be a terrible tragedy to see somebody injured just because a, a, a safeguard that had been identified uh, was overdue for implementation and that safeguard would have possibly protected that person if it, if it had been put in place on a timely basis. Yeah, I, I think that's a great place to, to leave off. And all those suggestions on setting due dates, um, assigning accountability and responsibility, they, they may or may not be the same thing, but both really need to be assigned. Monitoring whether or not it's being hit. It's all, it all ties right. And, and you know, the tragedy of if something were to happen that was already identified as a, as a scenario, it all ties right back to your very first statement on that is I think the next steps after, after doing a DHA are to do the work recommended in the DHA and make, make the, the processes safer. Exactly. Exactly. I couldn't think of a, any better spot to, to leave off on this topic. So uh, I really appreciate you taking your time again, Walt. Um, this has been pretty interesting for me and pretty insightful through the dust hazard analysis process um, and, and just the different topics that we covered. Like I said, this was probably my most um, marked up chapter in the methods to chemical process safety book on dust explosions. Um, and, you know, I've done a number of these podcasts now on dust hazard analysis, but there's still that much good information in here that um, and I was explaining to Walt that it's all marked up in the margins and have all these things underlined and highlighted. So I appreciate you coming on and sharing. <laughs> I, I just hope I hope the markups were not corrections. <laughs> no, <laughs> I, I wouldn't. Uh, I wouldn't dare. Um, most of it was, you know, pulling. It was a better way to look at things. And I had, you know, a, a new framework, a new filter through which to to understand the material. Things like, yeah, we don't need to go back there, but things like redundancy and whether or not, you know, there there's is independence between safeguards and the people that are operating the safeguards and that sort of stuff. So, um, I really appreciate it. I I look forward. Maybe we'll get you back on the podcast to uh, discuss um, another topic related to combustible dust in the future. But I really appreciate taking the time to go through uh, dust hazard analysis and hazard identification in this episode. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Okay, and we will be talking soon. Thanks, Walt. Yeah. So you've been listening to myself, Dr. Chris Cloney, and Walt Frank of Frank Risk Solutions based out of Wilmington, Delaware. We've been talking all around hazard identification and evaluation through dust hazard analysis. So this is a topic that we talked about on the podcast before in a number of different episodes due to its its importance as uh, NFPA 652 mandates that by upcoming September that uh, DHA is being done in all industries, all facilities that may be handling combustible dust. Step one is figure out if you're actually handling combustible dust and that if the DHA ever uh, requires it needs to be done in the first place. Um, as we talked a bit about in this episode, so we talked through why a, a DHA is important. We talked through existing safeguards and a lot of the important considerations there. We talked through how recommendations are created, what a DHA document should contain, and then I, I really like the ending part of you know what are the next steps after a DHA? Well, they're to start implementing the safety protocols and safety upgrades that are that are recommended in the dust hazard analysis and. So as I said, I couldn't think of a, a better place to leave off. So this has been an interview focused on this Methods and Chemical Process Safety book, Volume 3 on Dust Explosions. 
We'll include a link to the book in the show notes at dustsafetyscience.com slash 56 for this episode, um, or you can find our resources page at uh, slash resources. And as always, I really appreciate everything you're doing in industries handling combustible dust every day. Stay safe over the, the next weeks and months ahead. I look forward to talking to you next week on the Dust Safety Science Podcast. Thank you.